Hello and welcome to the Eddie Podcast. This is where we share stories from dads who have faced challenges of raising a child with a disability, or have lost a child, or have a child with significant mental illness. Conversations are raw and real, and sometimes not easy, but our aim is to inspire and connect, to provide some hope, because in the challenges that life throws your way, I think it's helpful to hear from other dads who are going through it or have been through a similar challenge. In today's episode, we'll meet Ben Walton. And Ben is one of those guys who is completely laid back and hugely pragmatic in his approach to life. I can't help but feeling a little bit jealous. Add to that how even when Chester, who we call Chezzy, is only six with quadriplegic cerebral palsy, Ben and his wife, Sam, have already raised over £100,000 for Chezzy to have surgery in the States to help with his physical development and continue to take him to specialist physio and life-building activities throughout the week. They're clearly hugely dedicated, and you'll hear how setting and aiming for those goals helps them to process the situation they find themselves in. It's hugely inspiring, and they're still fundraising, so feel free to donate at cheersforchester.co.uk. That's cheers, number four, Chester. .co.uk. It was a real privilege to hear Ben share some of his personal challenges as well that he's faced over the past few years and how he looks to deal with it. His acceptance of what's going on around him is astounding, as I think it took me a lot longer. So without further ado, let's jump straight into the podcast. Ben, welcome to the Eddie Podcast. Thank you very much, Scott. Pleased to be here. Ben, can you start by just giving us a bit about your background, what you do for a living and home life? Yeah, sure. I'm a uh, pretty typical mid-30s guy living down on the south coast in uh, in Bournemouth. I actually work in, in recruitment. I'm the head of operational excellence for a large recruitment business. Live down here with my beautiful wife, Sam, and, and my son, Chesie, as I call him. Yeah, the reason I'm here today is is obviously to talk more about Chessie and, and some of the, the, the challenges that we, we've faced from raising a child with disabilities and what that what that can mean to the family unit and and working and everything else as well. So yeah, thanks for inviting me on, Scott. Oh, it was great to have you here. So tell us about about Ches now. So how old is he, and um, what's the what's the correct way of terming his disability? Yeah, so uh, so Chester is six years old now, turned uh, six in March. Actually, born on St Patrick's Day. He has a quadriplegic cerebral palsy, um, which was diagnosed when he was about two months old. Not even that, probably. And he's affected in all four limbs. So. Chester is a non-walker. He's a full-time wheelchair user. Well, I say full-time. He crawls around the house and burns ho- uh, holes in trousers most of the time. But yeah, he's um, he's also delayed somewhat mentally and has various other kind of learning challenges. Not necessarily diagnosed in some of some of the learning difficulties, but it's it's becoming quite a, a apparent that there are some there as well. But mainly, it's a, a kind of physical. Um, impairments that, that that Chester has. And if you don't mind taking us back, how, how was the pregnancy? And you say it was sort of two months after he was born that he was diagnosed. So talk us through those very early stages with the, with the pregnancy. How did it feel to be expecting your first and, and then tell yeah, us what sure. happened? Yeah, sure. So um, pretty vivid memories of this, as you, as you can imagine. Firstly, I mean, the whole pregnancy came out of the blue, to be fair. <laughs> I remember getting a call from, uh, at that time, um, girlfriend, Sam, to say, um, you might want to sit down, I've got some news. Roll forward to about seven months later. Um, and when Chester, uh, sorry, when Sam was 30 weeks pregnant, 
I got a call just after playing football with work to say, I think I'm going into labour. You need to come home now. And, you know, I was about 45 minutes away at the time. So I quickly jumped in that car. As you can imagine, there was no no bags packed, no names decided, no anything at that stage. And in my head, I think up until the point that he was actually born, I did not expect him to actually be born, if that makes sense. So yeah, I mean, the, the pregnancy up to that, that was all very standard. Every scan had been positive. We were classed as low risk. Sam had been to all the appointments. Sam was taking every supplement under the sun and reading every book about, you know, what to do as a as an expectant mother, etc. Chester was our our first and, and currently only child. So yeah, we tried to follow follow the letter and and to this day I don't I suppose we don't know why he was he was delivered early. But yeah, he was, I remember it being um quite a traumatic birth, mainly in the sense, as I said, that it was completely unexpected. But as with anyone with a a premature baby would know it's 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 almost surreal in the sense that as soon as the the child's born they put them in what's the equivalent of a plastic bag right and they whisk them away and you don't even get to see them so you know first time we then saw chester was a few hours later when um we were essentially looking at him in the in the NICU unit so the intensive care unit there with god knows whatever different cable breathing apparatus etc as you can imagine on him at that time so he was tiny what was he i think he was two pounds something like that when he was born um absolutely tiny he was in hospital in in poor hospital uh, under the care of those he was in niku for 50 days that was a really tough time right clearly you want to be there all the time you've also got a point where you need to go back to work you've also got to support your family, your wife. You've also got to rely on support network, etc. Um, the way we managed that personally was for the first couple of weeks, we were both in there, Sam and I, pretty much every hour you could be there. Um, Sam returning home, well, we're both, sorry, returning home in the evenings. Um, and then when I went back to work for the remainder of the probably four or five weeks, I suppose, of that. Um, Sam would literally be by his side every single day and I would go to work and then go there in the evenings afterwards to be with Sam. So we had friends and family who brought us in food, etc. cetera. Um, but yeah, I mean, that was, that was super tough. I think um, just looking back now, it, it all sti you still do believe that everything's going to be okay. You're still expecting mm. it okay well it's a tough 50 days but actually this will all be a distant memory soon um all the scans etc brain scans looked absolutely normal apart from um we were getting ready to move into the normal baby uh, maternity unit as opposed to intensive care and they did a uh, an extra brain scan and, and and found that actually there was some some damage to, I think, the, the, the white matter in his brain. And this came completely out of the blue because on his previous scans, that hadn't shown. Um, and Sam was with Chester at the hospital when they told her this. And I was actually in London at work um, and I got a call from Sam and I was on the train on the way back and she was in floods of tears, as you can imagine. She could barely speak. And she would just said, look, just, just heard this this news from the consultant, they they think, you know, that that there's a high possibility that he could end up with cerebral palsy, etc. So yeah, I then spent the next hour on a train. It was standing room only, 
I was stood outside the toilet to make it worse. Deep in my thoughts about this, but also really wanting to get home to, to comfort Sam, but still in the back of my mind thinking, ah, that happens to other people, that, that doesn't happen to us. So rushed back to the hospital, Sam, seeing floods of tears, sat on, sat on a bed, etc. Consultants coming in, talking to us. Um, but at this stage, it's still only a, oh, it's a chance. So you're still holding that hope. Um, we then, you know, took took Chester out after said like 50 days, he came home again, still expecting everything to develop normally. And we soon realized that actually he was different than other neurotypical children. He wasn't um, able to put his arms up in front of him, etc. And there was just a few other telltale signs, I guess, if you're an expert, that would lead you to think that something's not quite right. Um, so we had, you know, meeting after meeting and appointment after appointment with different consultants at Paul Hospital at the time. He's still in their care now. And after about two months, he had his, his diagnosis, which is really like early. So yeah, I mean, that's his, that's his backstory in terms of that whole, um, that whole birth piece. Can you remember the, the first night in hospital when you weren't able to be with him and, and Sam wasn't when you were in the neonatal uh, intensive care unit? I don't actually. That sounds really weird. I think everything was a bit of a blur. Both absolutely shattered as well because the birth was overnight anyway. We stayed over the first few nights and then started to go home, but I almost forced Sam to go home to get some rest for herself. So yeah, I mean, I don't really remember. That sounds really bad. Like the specifics, because your your head's in such a space, you just you just fall asleep. Like you just need need to. It's very difficult, you know, when when your child is taken away from you like that, right at that moment, on top of the shock of, you know, having that call um, from Sam that she was expecting, you know, she thinks she's going to have a baby. It's kind of ten weeks early, um, and and you know, it's no wonder the body kind of preserves you at this point because it, I'm sure it was very, very daunting. And you know, seeing your child in in NICU with all the tubes is not what mm. you're expecting to see, is it? No, absolutely not. And, and like I said, it's a bit of a blur. Do you remember the first time you were able to hold him, even with the tubes on? Did, you know, funny when- enough. I was looking at the video yesterday because Chester, Chesley, he he loves playing on iPad and he loves looking at photos. And he he looked at this video and he's like, "Oh, that's that was me." I'm like, "Yeah, it was you." And I, he was like, "Why have I got them on? What what's that?" Yeah. Then the nurse very carefully, obviously, took him out of the incubator and gave it to to Sam to hold. It was so he was only one day old. It was he was literally allowed out for like the shortest time ever, still attached because at that time we had to. You know, basically any time you touched him or anything, you'd have to make sure you wash your hands, make sure you do it. Like you're only allowed to touch inside the incubator, all of that kind of stuff. Um, God knows what it'd have been like in COVID, by the way. <laughs> but yeah, that was that was that. So yeah, I mean, I was looking at the video yesterday of Sam's first time holding him. He sounded like a little sheep actually, because he was so small that his cry was almost like bleating. It was like, <laughs> it was uh, funny, but yeah, he's uh, yeah. I think my first time holding him, again, just very surreal, just tiny, absolutely tiny. And like, again, first time dad, I'm thinking I don't even know how to hold him anyway, let alone when he's this small. So that that was that was difficult. So he was there for 50 yeah. days, at which point uh, you, had, you had the presence of mind to say, right, we need to go home, we need to rest. Um, that must have been pretty impossible, though. Yeah, 
probably not so much for me, but I know my wife was like wrapped with guilt every time she'd leave him. Like, um, I don't know. I think I naturally am a bit more pragmatic in the sense that I knew it's what we needed. I knew he was in safe hands. I knew we couldn't affect anything by being there. But there were times when, you know, his his um, his sats would drop like constantly and the alarms would go off all the time. And there's sometimes that they just come off, they just come over and they just tap the button and turn the alarm off. And you're like, well, is that, should we not be like worried about this? And I think all of that kind of adds up as well. But obviously, you know, you just trust that they know what they're doing. So from, from my perspective, I guess I knew it's what we needed. My role in that was to to help Sam to to feel the same and to feel that actually she shouldn't feel guilty. She's not letting Chester down by leaving his side. Actually, she's doing it to be the, a better mother for him, if that makes sense. And going back to work, what was that like when, you know, because obviously you'd played football with some some mates at work, you'd then gone into, you know, the situation that you'd gone into with, with the birth and then presumably you had to tell people and then work out how to go back to work. And, and just, I'm really yeah. interested to know what how you compartmentalise that because when I, whenever we've been in the intensive care unit with Thomas, it's been for shorter stays. So... You know, we'd see parents coming in and going out who were doing the longer form mm. stuff. So she's uh, had a baby at 30 weeks or 25 weeks and 23 years on, I, I still don't know the yeah. answer to it. But how did you do that? What would work like with you? So, uh, we're absolutely fantastic, right? It was a case of, you know, doing what I needed when I needed to do it. Um, I was in a situation, um, the type of role I do, it's kind of, I can be home based if I need to, and I've got that degree of flexibility over my own workload. Anyway, that was that was really important, actually. Um, but my office was based um, in Winchester, which at the time was about an hour journey from Paul each way. So I had to factor that in and make sure that you know if I was if I did have plans to go to London, etc., it was at the right times of the day, and just just to make sure I was there for Sam more than anything. I think, yeah maybe naively as well probably because i was optimistic about chester's outcome i was almost thinking well we've had a child we you know everyone everyone has a child has to have similar bedding in period it's just ours happens to be in hospital instead of at home i love that i love that presence of mind to be able to you know because I think sometimes your mind is is not playing tricks on you, but is trying to deal with it in a in one way, and you're clearly telling your mind to do something different. Is that something you've always done? I think so. It's just yeah, it's just the type of uh, personality I have, I guess. I'm 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 always very, as I said, pragmatic, and I'm always uh, I try to be an, an optimist as much as it might really winds my wife up. I also try and put things into perspective as well, right? Um, and I know it doesn't help to say, well, it could be worse or, you know, to compare to other people. That actually helps me in a way because I realise that A, it could be much worse, but B, other people have gone through it, survived it. There's support networks out there um, and you see people thriving in certain situations. So why can't you? Um, I'm not one yeah. to be, I guess, a victim and want it to, to eat me up. So... I'm always thinking about, okay, well, what can I do to to affect this for me? What, how do I get around this? But Brilliant. yeah, obviously, there's I've had some pretty dark dark days, 
as my wife has you know we have together it's been a real challenge what, on the what, yeah what tends to bring those on do you know um i wouldn't say i have them so much at the moment although actually recently maybe i have i don't know i've always been very what i would class as mentally stable i don't know if that's the right term right in the sense that i've always been very on a level nothing nothing really phases me stresses me out etc i don't know maybe i just shut off emotionally right but I, I, with this i think some days i wake up and i'll just be like oh, i'm so tired i've just got no energy today i've got no motivation i don't feel great and i'm thinking is that a physical thing or is that a mental thing i don't i don't know what signs are to look for i i, I don't know you know from other people how they can quickly identify whether they are anxious or depressed or whatever i'm not sure i necessarily know how to identify that um to me it's about okay right i'm just gonna pull myself through it i just get on with stuff if i sit here now and don't do anything then i'm gonna feel worse and i know that's not right for everyone but that's my way of doing it it's just that i'll just play one and i'll think about something else and like I said, sometimes I just feel tired and like, I don't know if it's mental or physical. And that happens to me right now, like quite a lot recently, actually. And I think, yeah, I don't know, difficult one. I never, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I necessarily had challenges with mental health whilst Chester was young, say like three and under, because at that stage, whilst he has different challenges it's perhaps not so obvious because he's still a, a baby essentially it's only when he's getting older i'm starting to really notice the core differences between him other children and the activities and the relationships and the fun and all that that all the other parents are able to have with their children that starts to make you get really down and then and then you know, sometimes I'll be really short with Chester and like shout at him when I know I shouldn't do. And it's like, it's just a constant battle to, to get him to, to enjoy things. Because I know that if I go somewhere and it's soft play or it's a trampoline, I'm going to have to physically get on there with him and jump up and down for half an hour. And I'm just feeling like I just haven't got the energy to do it, <laughs> but I need to for him. And then I see other like, like of my friends and their kids are like playing football and doing football tournaments and all of that. And I'm like, Chester would love to do that, but he has to kind of sit on the edge and watch in his wheelchair, you know? So that, that kind of stuff is starting to affect me now, I'd say, but it hasn't necessarily done mm. in the past. Yeah. And that's interesting. Cause I think, and I'm not a therapist and this isn't a therapy session. So you know, all, all I've got is 23 years experience and, you know, and a very different one at that, you know, Thomas is, is fully mobile, um, but has, you know, I know exactly what you're saying there when you're on the sidelines and dad's doing other things because equally Thomas won't be able to play football. And again, other dads listening to this podcast will, will hear that and go, yeah, I get that. Yeah. And that's okay. And that's okay. And I think, you know, Chester is six. And those are your first steps, and there'll be things you'll do that become really special for for you for you and Chess. And I think, but it's just a bit raw at the moment because you've got these new things that other dads are doing. Um, and all I can say to you is, yeah, it, it, there'll be things that only you and Chess can do, um, and there'll be times that you'll spend together where 
you know, it's just you and him and, and there's no one else there. But then also you want to take him to his mate's party who's going in the ball pond. And your friends also will, you know, they might start to 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 tweak things as well. And yeah. you, know, you don't you don't quite know what tomorrow's got in store. And you but... want him to have, you know, you know, obviously I want him to have friendships and 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 all this kind of stuff as well. And he and he, he does to a degree, but And that would develop, you know, the children I've seen, you know, at Thomas's schools and things similar to to Chess, you know, they'll they'll have a way of expressing themselves and and having a good time amongst people who who aren't their parents or other adults. Um, so I just encourage you with that because I, I know I know what it, I know what it must mm. feel like to a to a degree, not completely. But you said the early years it didn't feel quite so tough. So when when did you start to look at the operation and and fundraising for yeah. that? Yeah. So when I said the early years it didn't feel so tough, probably uh, <laughs> if I reflect back, that that's probably a lie. Um, I think it's just different challenges through the, through the years. And it's that whole change curve you go through, right? From, you know, get, trying to get to acceptance from the anger and the upset and all of that. I think um, at the beginning, of course, you're angry and all of that. But for me, I, like I said, it, it just wasn't so, it wasn't so obvious. And maybe it's burying my head in the sand and just assuming that he's going to end up being okay. It's just going to be delayed. Um, what was tougher for me in the early years, in all honesty... Um, was probably actually looking after the mental health of my wife, right? And the strain it had on our relationship as opposed to Chester. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd sometimes think to myself, I think like kind of got it twice here because I'm looking after both. And, and that's not with any degree of disrespect to my wife because she is absolutely incredible. But she is, she's suffered more than I have mentally, especially, and she's much better at understanding that as well. And, and, and knowing when she is. Um, but she's also far better at letting people know that and letting it, getting it out. The only silver light, you've always got to look in a silver lining. Chester slept through the night like an absolute dream. If he didn't sleep through the night as well, I hate to think what would have, what would have happened. But that was, I guess, a bit of a, a bit of a respite. Um, but yeah, certainly, I mean, Sam was obviously mourning the loss of, uh, maternity to some degree she tried to take chester to like wriggle and rhyme and all these things and to make friends with with other mothers and chester would just scream the entire time that that's that's all he really did mm. as a baby just cry 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 um tried to take him to baby century tried to take him to turtle tot swimming i mean clearly wasn't going to get anywhere near the swimming levels that the other boys and girls had it's just we're trying to do that for us as much as for him, but without getting much back. Um, so yeah, I would say whilst it was for me personally, easier on my own health, probably when he was younger, it's harder now because I'm starting to realize the, the differences. I asked about the fundraising. Um, so because of Chester's uh, diagnosis and cerebral palsy etc he's had he's been to a physio someone called jane who's, who's, who's great he's been going to her twice three times a week since he was five months old um which obviously comes at a cost so you know initially we thought okay well we probably need some support with this because you're looking at best part of a hundred pounds for an hour session right 
Um, and then we start to say, okay, well, we're going to need wheelchairs, etc. So, so Sam had the idea of setting up essentially a fundraising page. Um, we set it up called Cheers for Chester um, via a, um, a a bigger charity called Just for Children, who basically uh, offer out this service where they 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 run the charity, so they've got the trustees and all that kind of stuff. But they enable you to fundraise and then have your own pot of money, if that makes sense. And why this is great is because you know they can they control all of that, um, but it also means that you, from a credibility perspective, no one can ever accuse you of using the money for something else because you can only actually spend it on something that they allow you to, right? So that's that's good when people see you going on trips or buying nice things. You you shouldn't feel guilty about that if you're fundraising at the same time. Does that make sense? We did some fundraising, got him his his first wheelchair with his Captain America wheels, which he loves. Um, and then we started having conversations with Bristol Hospital, it was at the time, about a, a big operation called SDR surgery, which basically cuts all of the, the spastic nerves in his spine and would remove his scissoring in his legs and give him the only chance he'd ever have in to be able to stand and walk. And that would be with, you know, with, with a, a frame, to be honest with you. We then got a letter from from the hospital to say um, to say it was a no, which of course was a huge, huge disappointment um, for us. Um, the rationale given was that um, he was essentially too serious. Um, they have a classification system between one and five, five being the most serious, one being uh, the the most mild. Um, and in this country, they only currently fund and operate on levels two and three, I believe it is. And Chester was classed as a four. I mean, Sam, Sam's an absolute expert in all this. She spent hours and hours researching everything you can imagine for, for Chester over the years. She, she realized that the world leading surgeon, the guy who pioneered it was a guy called Dr. Park in um, St. Louis um, in America and sent some videos off and applied. And he was like, yeah, absolutely. I can, I can work on Chester. And he's had similar experiences of, of of other children with similar and people go from all around the world to this guy so we're like okay fine well let's go with this but to do that we're going to need a hell of a lot of fundraising so we needed to raise about a hundred thousand pounds um to make this happen and we did events ranging from golf days to auctions to poker nights and and the biggest event we did was we a group of us ran from Poole to Bristol over the course of three days. So we ran three marathons in three days, which uh, hurt like hell. Um, but it was really, it was really emotive because it was almost like these tens of thousands of steps to try and help Chester have one step type thing. And it was such an incredible experience for everyone involved from a, a team camaraderie bonding perspective. It was all like our, our best friends. And we had, some of the parents helping us with support vehicles and we had lots of sponsors that we got involved so it was it was a fantastic event for many reasons actually and it was also great from a mental health perspective because the training involved in getting out there having a, a dual goal with other people um and getting time to run as well really really helped and both myself and sam felt great while we were going through this because A, we had a purpose and something and a goal and B, we're involved in a team and C, we were actually getting healthier. So, you know, there's a lot to be said for that event. We hit the fundraising, but also from ourselves, from a mental health perspective, it was it was great. Yeah, it was a fantastic event and, and um, 
what are memories that we'll cherish and also enabled us to, to fundraise to get to St. Louis. How much did you raise in the end? I don't know, to be fair, because like it's still ongoing. Overall, we're well over 100,000 and we've, we've got a decent pot left as well, um, which is paying for Chester's ongoing um, therapy. He goes to his mum, Sam, she drives him to Oxford, which is two hours each way every single Wednesday for a two hour session. He has two physios a week. He has horse riding on a Saturday. He has race running on a Sunday. He has physio work on a Monday. And then we're also paying for him to have an external teaching support going into a school two days a week to help him to try and learn to read. So that's another challenge, right? Is Chester goes to a special needs school, but because the the every child there is so different, it's really hard for them to like, teach effectively if that makes sense and that's not having to go at the school it's just that every child has so many different such different complex learning needs it's almost impossible for them to just have a curriculum so what we found is is chester is is kind of mentally perhaps more able than some of his peers at the school and we want him to to be able to to read and write etc and we believe that he's capable of learning more than he is if that makes sense so yeah that's why we're we're using some of the fundraising to assist with that as well. And that's hugely positive. Not only are people helping you raise money, but they're getting off, off of their couches to go and run three marathons in a day and you know, or play golf, which I'd quite be happy to do, <laughs> of course, um, as listeners know. Um, but you know, for that's in the harshness of that. You know, I talk about sometimes being in the valley, right? And you know, you've just got to keep moving. And you know, you kept moving by going, right, let's we're not gonna take no for an answer, which is fantastic. And you then went, right, never give up, let's go out to this guy in the states we're going to need to raise some money yeah. and that's a really positive thing to do and and to see you know i know i appreciate the challenges you're, you're having but that's massive right yeah absolutely and that's what do you know what it's a really good piece of advice to give to anyone going through this is it's about having goals if you've got something to focus on um it really does help and like i said like Yes, if you were looking at the purpose of that that run, it was the fundraising to get Chester to America to go through all this. But just having something to focus on was really helpful as well. The operation itself was another thing to focus on because we had a date of like, it was March 21 and um, it was during lockdown. And we had to fly out to St. Louis. We had to um, write first and foremost, to the US Embassy to plead on humanitarian basis that they'd allow us in in the first place. You don't know if you're going to get in. You've got nowhere to phone anyone. You just get a, an email seven days before you're supposed to leave. So obviously you can imagine the stress waiting for this to come through whilst you've paid for your flights and you've got everything else sorted to know if you're even allowed to go. We then had to isolate for 10 days when we arrived. Again, COVID regulations. When we got there, it was deep snow, <laughs> um, right in the middle of St. Louis. We stayed in an Airbnb in the middle of quite a uh, deprived area, I would say. Ten days. And me and Sam worked the whole time we were there as well. So, oh, sorry, that's a lie. We didn't work the whole time. We took probably the first week off, but then we worked. And my, my company were amazing with me, um, even though it was, a, I think it was a six hour time difference. We managed to get through it. Um, so Sam and I would get up at 3, 4 a.m. local time, log in, do some work, and then 
get Chester up, get him to the hospital. Obviously, he was there. He had his operation. But then there was physio every day after his work kind of stuff. So it was... But do you know what? I actually enjoyed working while I was out there. I enjoyed being up super early. I enjoyed being in a different place. That that also helped, I think, with the, the scenario. Yeah, that's, that's two hours before the 5am club people <laughs> get up. Yeah, and typically I'm pretty lazy, to be fair. I'm, I'm not an early riser. Jet lag helped. The resilience in that is just, you know... It's that doggedness that you need to have as a parent of a child with a disability. And, you know, that's going to serve you in, in great stead. And I think, you know, it is just, you know, you know, obviously Eddie's motto is just keep moving forward. As long as the sun still rises and still sets, you can still move forward. And you've just got to. And then you embrace it. Yeah. You know, you embrace the 3 a.m. start because, you know, it's a bit quieter in the murder capital of the U.S. then. So it's a bit yeah. different. And then, you know, you're dealing with work. and, you, and But you're, you know, the, you've got those moments. It's just the three of you, um, you know, about to embark on an operation, which I'm sure, you know, came with its own pressures as well. So, you know, hats off, mate, because... That's you know, the, the resilience and, and that investment you're putting into into Ches's development. You know, from there, not financial investment, but physical investment with the classes that you're getting him on, the horse riding, the physio, all of that will reap rewards. And you don't know what they're going to be yet because you know he's six. And you know, as some of the other dads we've heard on the podcast talk about, we talk about steps. So your plateau. And then you'll hit you'll hit the next bit to go up, and it is literally ninety degrees. Yeah. And you push, and you get to the next one. And you know who knows what the future holds. But at the same time, enjoy what you're doing in the now, and you know focus on yourself, with, which which is the things that you're doing. And I think, given the unique pressures you have as a as a dad to someone like Chairs, those are huge pressures that no other people kind of recognise. And I think those are the things that, that you can take take away that yeah. you've got the resilience and but it's okay to say just not it today. Is. And you know what? <laughs> you do have to keep moving forward step by step. And one thing I've realized is every year, every six months, every stage, whatever, you just got a different set of hurdles, right? You've got to know how to overcome those, but also take the plus points out of them as you as you as you're doing each one and, and the learning. Yeah, definitely. I mean Unfortunately, I, I think I am pretty resilient, to be fair. I have to be. We spoke earlier about seeing your friends and other people and all of that. And, and you're right, Scott, you know, people don't necessarily understand your own specific situation. Even your closest friends who will do whatever they can to support you will not be able to fully empathise or understand you and your family situation. And that's okay. And I think you just have to realise that. So what you then don't end up doing is just being really jealous about other people, if that makes sense, right? Because people will help. And we saw that with fundraising, right? Our, some of our friends and even people we didn't know, the amount of support they gave us either financially or, or help or getting involved was unbelievable. People do want to help. What they can't do, obviously, is change their own world so that they completely empathize and understand they'll have their own problems right which to them will feel just as big as your problems you just got to be totally comfortable with that yeah that's excellent and i was just going to say to you when you're talking about um some of the good things tell me about one of your one one or two of your best days with chester yeah obviously we do do lots of lots of fun things together um to pick one's quite difficult 
I mean, he makes me laugh every day. To be fair, he's a cheeky, he's a cheeky character. Um, me and Sam sometimes will sit in the car and just look at each other, and you can almost like sense the relief or just happiness if he if he's happy that day and he's had a good day out. And that could be something simple from just going to a toy shop or that he's had, or you've been. I don't know. It, it doesn't need to be something grand like you've gone to a Peppa Pig world or something. It's it's the small things for for Chester. So to me, where I get the most enjoyment out of him is when I see him laughing and he's got the most infectious laugh ever. Um, and, and yeah, when he, when he gets involved with stuff, that's when I'm like super proud. So pass the parcel, right? If he sits round in that circle, I get an enormous sense of pride. Whereas other parents just would be like, well, I sit in a circle doing pass the parcel. But to see him interacting with other people, that's when I really, that's when I really get a sense of enjoyment out of it. It's, it's that interaction. I'm witnessing him and building relationships. What's the best thing that someone said to you? I'm sure people have said the wrong thing on more than one occasion. But what's the best sort of thing people have said to you as you've started this journey? Yeah, advice or things you've stood by, things that you've held on to and um, gone, right, I'm going to keep to that. That's a very good question. Some of the best things people have said actually has been more around general advice around different organizations or people who are uh, are offering services or days out or whatever that can help us so like some of the more tangible things as opposed to solid advice so for example you know we were put in contact with the dorset children's foundation and they have various events that they run and it's all inclusive and then Chester's around other children that are similar and it's, it's getting him involved. So it's not necessarily advice in a sense of how I deal with it. It's more around ideas of things to do because that's also really difficult Like when you have a, a child with disability. You definitely don't want to be an island, right? Otherwise, if you don't embrace the fact that they're different and try and do different things and just try and bury head in sand and do the same as everyone else, you're going to really struggle so whilst you want to be as normal as possible and do those, you do still have to accept the fact that your, your child is different. Your world is different. Your life is different. You have to take the plus points out of everything you can and just be comfortable in being, like I said, different, really. A long-winded answer to your question, and I'm not sure I necessarily answered it, but yeah, it's, it's difficult. And for me, it's just all a big learning journey. I was gonna, my next question was be what advice would you give to other dads <laughs> in a similar situation? And I, I think you've answered that already, mate. Yeah. yeah, I would say that definitely. Yeah, it's being comfortable being different. It's accepting the cards that you've been dealt. And then for me, it's and this is another really important one. It's you can't have a blame culture. Otherwise, it'll eat you up. And really importantly, if you've got if you're married or you're with your partner still, or if you're fortunate that, you know, the, the mums sit around, you've got to understand and recognise that they're also going to go through a really tough time. They're going to see things in a different way to you. They're going to react in a different way. And that's totally fine. What you can't do is argue with how they feel or try and rationalise it. They feel what they feel uh, the same as you do. And sometimes you've just got to accept that rather than, trying to help if that makes sense and that's something i learned 
and me and my wife fell out loads in, over the past few years because I really annoyed her when she's when she's having a down day and she didn't want to get out of bed. I would be arguing saying, you need to pull yourself together. You need to get out. You'll feel better about it. Actually, I've just learned that that's, that's what she needed then at that time. And I've, I've massively had to learn through that. Well, Sam's a very lucky lady. So Ben, really appreciate you being so open and candid with us on, on the podcast, talking about those, those, those tough, those darker days. What have you learned through that and what kind of things do you put in place if you do wake up feeling like oh don't fancy it today yeah yeah so it's a really good question and as i uh, alluded to earlier for me it's the struggle for me is i can't always identify if i'm having a, a difficult day be it mentally or physically i just know that sometimes i wake up and i've got absolutely no energy right sometimes i wake up and i'm just not not up for the world sometimes i end up snapping at chester right when i shouldn't do one thing that I think is really important for anyone is to have something for yourself. And I try and encourage my wife to, to do this as well. Her thing is running. My thing is, and I'm rubbish at it, but it's golf. So I make sure that I try at least once a week. Well, I say at least once a week, because let's face it, I'm not going get, to get away with any more than that. Um, where I can to go for golf, because four hours out with your friends in the open, some fresh air, and you just kind of disappear from from the realities for a bit. So whilst it's not that I'm trying to bury my head in the sand or running, it's something that I enjoy for me. Um, and I think that's really important. And it also gives me something to look forward to as well, like those mini things. And sometimes we have golf weekends away and all these kind of things. So yeah, it's to me, it's important to have something for yourself is, is what I would say on that. And, and golf is, even though I'm absolutely rubbish at it, and it cost me a lot of money and lost balls. That's my thing. Talk us about some of the sort of key challenges that you're facing now with with Chess. You know, you start looking at, at different schools, and and how has that been for for the pair of you? So it's actually been really, really challenging, ridiculously so actually. And, and many other parents of children with disability probably feel the same. I think one of the biggest challenges in in our country is that each local authority kind of does their own thing and has their own. Um, teams. What we've personally found is it's been a battle throughout. So we had to go through a, a crazy amount of hoops to get him into a special needs school where he is now. Because he is mentally able, we want to, to be able to get him into a dual school approach. So we want, whilst we want him to have the, the care and the expertise from a physical perspective where he's at, we also want him to have normal relationships and learning experiences in a mainstream environment. It's taken us six months to even hear back, and now they're and now we're being told that actually, the school is concerned that they may not be able to meet his needs next year. So now, and this has only literally happened the last couple of days. So now we're kind of having to go back through that whole process again to understanding why that is when you know they want to be more inclusive, etc. And it's just another thing that kind of knocks you back, but it's another challenge, right, for another day. You want your children to have, like I said, an, as an atypical experience as, as everyone else. You want them to have friendships that are going to last a lifetime like you have. You want you want them to have um, the potential to uh, to have to have jobs and all this kind of stuff when they're older. So um, schools is a really difficult one, I would say. 
not just the impact that it has when you don't always get the answers you want and you've got just got to expect that that's going to happen at some stage right but also it's really hard knowing how to navigate it as well no one owns your son in terms of if it was a project right no one knows and tells you how to navigate each part of their life and schools is obviously a big part of that you you kind of expect be it medical education everywhere that someone somewhere owns the case but they don't so you really have to be resilient you really have to push down those barriers yourself a lot of the times and pick up the phone and make things happen and speak to other parents who've been through similar to ask them what they did and who their contacts were and who helped them out and and that's the only way i think you can kind of get get through these types of situations and from my perspective you know sam and i we, we'd love to to help other families who have similar challenges. Another reason that I'm really interested in in coming on this podcast today with you, Scott, and, and getting involved with Eddie, because you know I'd be more than happy to share my experiences and if it helps someone just understanding what an EHCP means or what that process is or what to expect in the coming years if they've just had an early diagnosis, then then you know be be happy to help someone with that. Ben, I've really enjoyed our conversation and, and feel really privileged to be with you uh, and hearing your 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 journey six years into it. And I really look forward to us hearing more um, over the coming years. But for now, thank you for joining us on the Eddie Podcast. Thank you for having me. Cheers, Scott. Some interesting takeaways there from Ben's story, particularly around goal setting and enjoying all parts of the day wherever you can, but also never taking no for an answer. I think also for some of us dads with a partner, you know, being sympathetic to your partner and not expecting and demanding that they process things in the same way that you do. I wish I'd heard that maybe 23 years ago. But also finding a local network. I think we're hearing that a fair amount on the Eddie podcast. And uh, that's certainly something you can do through some of the support organizations you have on our website at www.eddie.network. So thanks again for listening. And please remember to subscribe to hear the next story. And don't forget to leave us a review or rating as it helps other people find the podcast more easily so we can share these stories with even more people. And if you'd like to share your story, please visit us at www.eddy.network and click on share where you'll be able to send us your story, pics, and even if you'd prefer to keep anonymous, you can let us know there too. The more stories we can share, the more dads we can help. Thanks for joining us and remember, keep moving forward.